Amen. You know, there was an uh, article that came out about a week ago in the very prestigious publication, The Babylon Bee. Anybody familiar with that? Raise your hand. Okay, got a few Babylon Bee fans out there. Confirmed, faith without works, incredibly relaxing. <laughs> let, me, let me quote from the article. After spending several years wallowing in sin and not bothering to allow the Holy Spirit to change his life in any way, local Christian man, Nathan Peterson, I hope he's made up, uh, confirmed his findings Wednesday that having faith without works is, in fact, incredibly relaxing. Peterson pointed out that faith without works allows for a much easier life. Quote, if, I'm allowed, if I allowed my saving faith to be shown through my works, I'd have to be a lot more disciplined, like a disciple or something. <laughs> the man has also torn the book of James out of his Bible as he found it offensive and, quote, problematic. Yeah, he said, James was really harshing my mellow. All that stuff about faith and works being dead was a total bummer. Uh, now, we laugh because this is a caricature, okay? But a, think about what a caricature is. It takes something that's real and just sort of exaggerates it a little bit. I think it's a caricature of our hearts. I think there's a part of each of us that if we could say, yeah, I want to have faith and sit on the couch, that's great with us. I want to know that my eternity is secure and then live life however I want. That's great with us. Why would that be great with us? Because there's something disintegrated in our hearts. What we believe is not always attached to what we do and our desires and our emotions and our thoughts and our choices, all those quadrants of the heart that we talked about in the fall, they're not integrated it's not wholehearted because if they were, we would say this, I believe God's word is life. And so the best possible life for me is not checking out and sitting on the couch and doing whatever I want to do. The best possible life for me is taking my faith and seeing it come alive through my choices, through my works, you see. But there's an inner, uh, inner Nathan Peterson in each of us, an inner guy that wants to sit on the couch. Have faith, yes but live however we want. And James is just like striking to the core of this. You know, Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing through bone and marrow. This is what we are living out in this text through the book of James. This morning's message is part two of a two-part message. What Lloyd and I decided to do is, you know, we're walking through this book verse by verse, thought by thought, and we got to this faith and works section, verse really 14 through 26, and we said, we need to split this up into two sections because it's weighty, it can be confusing, particularly like for a good Protestant church like ours, you know? So what do we do with this idea? How do we navigate this tension? Well, one thing we will not do is tear James out of our Bibles. We will not do it. Of course, not literally, nor will we do that figuratively, by not teaching it. This is the living and active word of God. It is for us today. Now, through two chapters of the book, James basically been saying the same thing over and over again. You cannot separate genuine faith and works. The, the two are like the two sides of a coin. Okay, so I got a coin right here. Front side is our, the head's side says, in God we trust, there's your faith. Flip it over to the back side, there's works on the back part of that. Now, you know, wouldn't it be, um, wouldn't it destroy the coin if I could somehow take a saw and slice through the center of that and say, okay, I got my faith over here, I got my works over here. And that's what James is saying. I mean, just for a minute, just glance back up at, at verse um, 18. 
I'm not going to cover this text. Lloyd did last week, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. So he's, in other words, he said, okay, fine. We split the coin in two. You've got one, I've got the other, right? And then James goes on, show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, this is James's argument. You can't actually separate the two. Now, Lloyd gave you a gift last week and I'm not talking about the money in the envelopes. The gift Lloyd gave us last week was he helped us understand this passage by differentiating what James is contrasting here. Remember, those of you that were here, you know, you'll, you'll recognize this. Others of you, I'm, I'll share it with you right now. Lloyd said the contrast in this text is not between faith and works. James is never trying to contrast or pull those apart. In fact, he's trying to bring them together. The contrast is between genuine faith and false faith. What is false faith, you ask? Well, Look at verse 19, again from last week's text. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? A coin split in two is no longer useful. Can't spend it, can't do anything with it. It's useless. It's not even a coin anymore. So that's so-called, that's false faith. And James is saying genuine faith is always gonna be shown by works. That's how you know that there's genuine faith is what your life is speaking to, what your life is demonstrating you actually believe. And so in our passage this morning, we've got two stories, and you've already heard him read, but I'm going to exposit them. That just means explain. I'm going to explain and apply the story of Abraham, the story of Rahab. And I'm going to do a shorter message this morning because I want to save time at the end to hear the stories of Fellowship Franklin. So literally start thinking about that, praying about that. Some of you in this room, if, if you've done something with that money that you were given last week, we want to hear what God did. We want to hear what happened and, and how did God move in your heart. It doesn't have to be an earth-shattering, amazing story. It could seem simple to you. But this morning, you're going to have a chance to share with this body and encourage us as we see active faith in our midst. So be praying about that. Be thinking of that. Some of you will want to share. Let's dig right in. Let's start with this example of Abraham in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now, this is a very interesting verse. I'm going to pause. We'll just talk about this verse before we go on. The Greek is written such a way that it, it sort of um, expects an affirmation. You know, that's why in English it's translated, was not he? In other words, like, surely you know that he, but James is actually like, he's, he's kind of pulling a, a judo move on the readers because everyone knew Abraham's story in the Jewish context that he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish Christians. They grew up knowing about this story of Abraham and Isaac, but they always talked about it as a faith story, not a works story. And so uh, what he's saying is, wasn't he justified by works? Now, to appeal to Abraham in an argument for a Jewish person is a little bit like us as Americans uh, appealing to um, George Washington. You know, it's like the father of the country. But Abraham was way more weighty to them than George Washington is to us because he was not only the kind of the, the father of the nation, but he was also the father of their faith. Like everything goes back to Abraham in the Hebrew identity. And so this particular story that James is reminding them of is when God had given a son to Abraham and Sarah who were barren, and, and it was a miracle child, Isaac. They were far too old to conceive, and God put Isaac 
inside the womb of Sarah and Isaac was born and began to grow up and Abraham and Sarah must have thought God came through and he is fulfilling his promise to our son Isaac. And then one day God spoke to Abraham and he said, take that son whom you love. That part is in the text. Take your son, your only son, whom you love and go onto the mountain which I will show you and sacrifice him. And I just want the weight of that to fall on us for just a moment. I, I shudder every time I think about that story. Like, what? God? Why? God. Surely not God. There's no record of Abraham arguing with God. But we have a record of Abraham obeying God. And so here are Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain and Isaac looks at his dad and you know they've got the wood and they've got the fire but there's no lamb and, and Isaac has done this before. He never got up without an animal to sacrifice and so he turns to Abraham and he says, where is the, the sacrifice? And then through Abraham's faith, he speaks and he says, God will provide. There's Abraham's active faith faith and he carries it all the way through he binds Isaac puts him on that altar takes the knife in his hand guys he was going to do it in fact Hebrews tells us later on in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham believed God was going to fulfill his promise even if it meant resurrection that meant he was going to take the life of his son as God had asked him to do he raises the knife God says stop God says now I know now I know What's interesting about that is God knew all along. God knows everything. But it was Abraham's demonstration, his obedience, his activity, his works that made his faith alive, that demonstrated that his faith was genuine, not false. And the nation was built not so much through Abraham's son, but through Abraham's faith. And so James comes in and he's saying, listen, you think of this as a story of faith, but I want you to turn the coin to the other side for just a minute. Yes, it's in the Faith Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11, although that hadn't probably been written yet, you know, but, but it was still a story of faith that the Hebrew people would have all known. But I want to turn the coin over and show you how this was also a story of works. That's what James is doing here. Now, with that in mind, you see his argument makes perfect sense in the next verse. Take a look at verse 22. Here you go. He's going to spell it out for us. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Stay on that verse for a minute. Do you see this? You see that faith was working with his works. There it is. Verse 22 is so clear and it's so helpful in this faith works tension that I know we're, we're revealing. You got to read all this in the context. This is what James is saying. And as a result of the works, faith was completed. Let's talk about this verse. It's a really important verse. Um, perfected does not mean Abraham's faith was made perfect. Okay, perfected has another meaning to it. And usually when it, you see it in your Bible, it's not talking about moral perfection. Sometimes it is, but oftentimes you see the word perfect, it means whole. Both the Old and New Testaments use it that way, or it means complete. So what does it mean that Abraham's faith was perfected? Well, it means Abraham's faith was completed 
by his works or as a result of his works. Here's an illustration for you. An arrow was uh, designed and manufactured for one purpose, to fly through the air and hit a target. You can put an arrow on your wall as a decoration. That's fine. You can keep an arrow in the quiver, but it's not being completed. In other words, it's not living out the fullness of its intended purpose. When it hits the target, it has lived out its purpose. That's this idea James is saying. He's saying that the, the purpose of your faith is to be lived, is to be active, is to be seen, is to be visible. And so when Abraham, through his works, demonstrated that his faith was genuine, his faith found its mark. His faith was perfected. He goes on, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, quote, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Isn't that an interesting quotation? Like that same verse Paul uses in another place to talk about why, why righteousness comes through faith and not of works. And here James is using the exact same Old Testament quotation to see how it's pointing to works. How do you reconcile these? How do you go together? This is the best illustration of this that we have, men and women. We are word-centered and spirit-dependent. You know, Eric was talking about our values earlier. So when you come to passages of Scripture that you're like, man, how does this make sense? We're word-centered, which means we're not going to take anything out of the Bible. We're spirit-dependent. Say, God, help us to understand this. And believe me, there's a lot of ink spilt over reconciling James and Paul. I don't think it's, honestly, there needs to be that much debate about it. They're talking about the same thing. In fact, when Paul talks about faith, he's never talking about the kind of belief that the demons have, that kind of false faith, you know, uh, um, pseudo faith that James had already referenced. He's like, you believe God is one good, the demons believe that too. That's not actual real faith. Anytime Paul is talking about faith, he's talking about a faith that's active, a faith that's alive in you, a faith that's genuine. Remember the contrast is not between faith and works. The contrast is between genuine faith and false faith. So was Abraham reckoned as righteous because of his faith? Look right there in verse 23. He believed God, i.e. faith. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. But then flowing right out of that, you get the kicker verse, which is the one that many Christians stumble over, verse 24. So let's unpack it. You see, so it's like, therefore, in light of this illustration of Abraham, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, just you know, let your like, like, like Protestant tension just like build up for a minute. It's like, what? What about you know, sola fide, you know, faith alone, et cetera, et cetera. Do we still believe the gospel in this church? Absolutely. Every week we're gonna teach you that you are righteous not through your own activity, not through your own moral goodness. You are righteousness by the completed work of Jesus Christ. So how can James say this? I talked to a guy after the first service and he's just like, I think James misspoke. It's like, no, there's the Spirit speaking through James. How do you reconcile these two things together? We'll take a look at a couple of things, and I think this is going to help. I think this is going to help. Number one, that word alone at the end is so important. James is not saying you're justified by works and not faith. He's saying you're not justified by the kind of faith that, that is just half a coin. That demonic, you believe God is one, good for you, even the demons believe and shudder, all right? You're not, the demons are not justified, 
Like your, your intellectual belief of being like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess that's true is not actual faith. It's what the Bible would teach us, what James would teach. So, so first of all, you gotta understand, James is not talking about the same thing Paul is talking about when Paul uses the word faith. James is talking about this faith alone thing. He's talking about, you know, that's all there is, is just this flimsy one-sided coin that will not justify you. The other word that we gotta dig into to really help you understand this verse is uh, justified. What does the word justified mean? Well, theologically, the way Paul uses the word, it has a very particular theological meaning. The way I always remember it, this isn't perfect, but I think of the word justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That, that's the act when you put your faith in Jesus of being reconciled to God and righteousness given to you, placed on you through no human effort. That's your justification from a theological standpoint. But Greek words, just like English words have a range of meanings. And even our English word justified can be used in other contexts too, outside of just the Pauline theology. Let me give you an example. We, I'd say it this way. The sprinter justified his reputation with his world record time. What does that mean? It means he proved it. He demonstrated it. And sure enough, in Greek as well, this Greek word is often used in that way. What James is getting after when he says you're justified by works is he's saying your faith is proven. It's demonstrated. You're justified. Your faith is shown to be true faith, not false faith, by your works and not by so-called false faith, which is faith alone. Uh, I like this quote that I'm about to read to you. Um, it, it has helped me. It may help some of you. Uh, I've often heard it said this way. We are saved by faith alone, but not the kind of faith that is alone. Do you see how that works together? Don't, and, and don't forget about verse 22. You got to read verse 24 in light of the context. Verse 22, faith was working with works. Faith and works. That's why this example has been so helpful as we go through this. We're not going to cut James out of our Bible. It falls heavy on us. But it's not as hard as you think to reconcile what James is saying and what Paul was saying. In fact, I think if Paul was in a dialogue with James and they're talking about faith alone, Paul would have the same negative visceral reaction. Paul would say, by no way, shape, or form is the kind of intellectual only unlived kind of faith that the demons have, by no way, shape, or form is that what I'm intending when I say you're saved by faith. Do you see? They were writing to different audiences in different contexts. Paul was fighting legalism. James was fighting license. The gospel's found in both. Let's go on to the second example. We've, we've unpacked the story of Abraham. Now we're gonna go to Rahab, verse 25. In the same way. So he's saying, example number two. Like, you know, you've seen, you've seen exhibit one, now see exhibit two. Was not Rahab the harlot, so similar Greek construction, he's expecting an affirmative answer, also justified by 
works. There it is again. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. He's doing the same judo move again because Rahab's also like, oh, um, her, her story of faith was famous and it's gonna show up in Hebrews 11 in the, faith, in the faith hall of fame along with Abraham's. And so again, they're like, Abraham is faith, Rahab is faith. And he's saying, yeah, but there's another side to that coin. Now, I want you to think about Rahab for a minute. Some of you aren't real sure who she was. I'm going to remind you, she was as far from Abraham as you could get in some ways. Abraham was the father of the Hebrew faith. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute living in Jericho. Pagan. And not only a pagan, but even in her own pagan society, she was someone that would have been looked at as a a sinner or whatever equivalent that they would name her as. And so she lived in Jericho right at the time that God was giving the promised land to the Hebrew people. So Hebrew country uh, army came in. People in Jericho knew that, hey, this great people, they, they, they're probably gonna come and attack us. So they would have been getting ready for that. Um, they sent out some Hebrew spies into Jericho and Rahab, we don't know why she had this faith, but Rahab actually believed that the Hebrew God, Yahweh, was the true God. And so she essentially says, listen, um, I believe this God is real and these so-called gods of Jericho are, are weak or false or not alive. And so she had faith in the Hebrew God. She had genuine faith in the Hebrew God. How do we know that? Because her faith showed up. Her faith was active. And so she hid the Hebrew spies and then helped them escape. And because of her active faith, when the walls of Jericho fell, Rahab and her family, a prostitute and her family, were the ones that were saved. And then the, the, it's amazing what happens. Like you know, Rahab ends up being like the ancestor of King David, who's in the line of Jesus. It's, it's wonderful. So I love the fact that James goes from Abraham to Rahab, from the patriarch to the prostitute. And he uses these two, two stories the same way. Many of us in the room more easily identify with Rahab than Abraham. Think about it. How many of us would claim to be like a patriarch of the faith? Not me. Here's what I love about Rahab. She didn't have a lot of works. I mean, her life would have been a mess. It would have been a, a wreck. All right? She would have had a story. Okay? No little girl dreams of being a prostitute when she grows up. Something would have happened to Rahab. She would have had people that would, would, would have harmed her, wounded her. She would have had a story. I'm not saying she was innocent, but she had a story. And yet, she encounters the one true God and she believes. And, you know, all her life's a wreck, all her life's a mess. You know, she would have been like spit on by her society and looked down, looked down on her society. She would have been an outcast in her society. And yet she says, there, there is one God who can save me. And her courageous choice, which was an expression of her faith, was enough to save her. This is why I love Rahab, she simply believed, but her belief was real because she took action. And then James is going to wrap the whole argument up and close the chapter, so to speak. Oh, he didn't know he was closing the chapter. The chapter headings were added later, but it's the close of his thought, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, 
so also faith without works is dead. Here he's presenting his thesis one last time. The word for spirit is probably not a reference to the Holy Spirit in this context. Um, uh, Pneuma in Greek, which is the word, also means breath or wind. So think about this. You are breathing right now because God allows and desires you to have the breath of life. That's what scripture would teach us, that our breath is actually a gift from God. If, if, if you were in this first century context and you were walking on a, a road, maybe from Jerusalem to Jericho or all kinds of bad things happened, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan, et cetera, and you came across someone lying on the side of the road and you don't know if he's dead or alive, he's obviously been attacked and taken advantage of, and you go up to him, maybe like, just like that Good Samaritan, the first thing you're gonna do is you're gonna see if he's alive. How will you know if he's alive or not, whether he's breathing? Here's what James is saying. He said, how do you know if your faith is alive? If it has some movement to it. Here's what this means for us. True faith, genuine faith, is active faith. Doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect. In fact, if you skip ahead just two verses, Chapter three, verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. James is not saying, you know your faith is real if you're perfect. He's just saying, you know your faith is real if there's some activity, if there's some seed of fruit that's growing in you, some love of God, some love of people that's being birthed, not perfection, and you're gonna take three steps forward and two steps back. That's how the life of faith works. But is there some movement in you? Now, genuine faith engages the whole person. It interacts with your emotions. It shapes your desires. And it ultimately expresses itself in your choices. 